we open with the beautiful call of a boiled owl. <laughs> the dulcet tones. The dulcet tones. <laughs> Welcome to the Boiled Owl Coffee Club Podcast, the meeting after the meeting where we talk about our experience living sober. We don't speak for Alcoholics Anonymous. This is only our experience. We have no monopoly on sobriety. If you don't like our approach, that's okay. There's lots of ways to live, and there's lots of ways to live sober. This works for us. I'm Don. Oh, wake up! What's going on? Sleepyhead. Oh, hey Don. (laughs) What are you doing on my computer? Well, here we are again. For another oh. exciting episode of the Boiled Owl Coffee Club. Ooh. Did you know? <laughs> oh, sorry about that. I God. You it's so easy coffee. to get distracted in these Zoom meetings, man. I mean, I'll fall asleep in a heartbeat. Well. Hi, everybody. I'm Sam. <laughs> Did you see the email from uh, Pat in in Southport Men's Group? He said that he took the questions from the quiz show that we did a few episodes back and did it live (laughs) that was a fantastic email to get that quiz show episode has gotten a lot of response too yeah that was so much fun but man i wish i I would have loved to have have seen him do that live i mean it would be fun to do it with a group oh yeah of course i mean at this point in time don anything would be fun to do as a group (laughs) you got that right Oh my goodness. I I mean, we could practice buttering biscuits as a group and it would be fun. (laughs) It would have a grand old time, get some people together and butter some biscuits. (laughs) It would, I mean, I just canceled a book group that I'm in. I just decided it was too much exposure to go. So I'm, you know, I'm sticking to Zoom. Yeah, we got to take those, those calculate, or at least I'm taking those calculated risks. Um, you know, I, I have a very small number of friends that I'm willing to go meet at a restaurant that has outdoor dining Yeah, and one couple of friends that, uh, we have gone to their home and, uh, and had dinner with them. It's the calculated risk. It's kind of one of those things like it actually makes the event that much more special because it's, daring. <laughs> it's it doesn't happen that a lot. Element now. of danger. <laughs> no, not the element of danger, but but the fact it's kind of like you know if you eat cake every day, then cake yeah. is not no longer a treat. And we've but, not not been meeting. Yeah, yeah. And so being able to spend some time face to face with yeah. people and kind of you know forget about COVID for a minute. Yeah, um, you're you're really younger nice. than I am. Well, I mean, we're still taking the proper precautions. Yeah. I mean, just because we've removed a mask doesn't doesn't mean we're we're still not covering our face when the waiter comes. And yeah. but while we're eating and drinking uh, and sitting outside, uh, yeah. and still, you know, we're not like all, all up on each other. We're, yeah, we're yeah. So precautions. I've been meeting people on the porch, but uh, but you know what I've done is I've accepted Zoom like. I'm no longer going to complain about Zoom. I have decided I'm going to love Zoom just because it works. It's what we have, and I'm going to love it. That's the way I'm going to live my life. I don't know if I'm going to love it, but I, I tell you one thing. I am grateful for it because can you imagine how disconnected we would all be <sighs> yeah, if we didn't that's have what this I'm technology? About. Yeah, that's what I'm talking yeah. about. And, you know, you get, we can get together with people that are constantly getting together with people that we don't even know that well, like our guest today, Liz. Hi, Welcome, Liz. Liz. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, I'm glad that you took the risk. Oh, this, there's no risk. <laughs> there's <laughs> oh, yeah, no the risk bit. being oh, here. There's computer viruses too, Don. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, you might catch a computer virus. <laughs> But I know, Liz, because uh, you're a member of my home group, mm-hmm. the Shivering Denizens. We meet weekdays at 5.30, and you can get to it at nc23.org. It's only a virtual meeting. It's a Zoom meeting. 
What and about- it's got a lot of, uh, of of people around Greensboro attending as well as you've got a nationwide participation yeah. there as well. But I I know that you know now that colder weather has hit, y'all are going to be shivering, Dennis. <laughs> <laughs> While I sit here in the desert in California, mm-hmm. rubbing in. <laughs> <laughs> so, Liz, I met you at Shivering Denison's. You spoke, and then you started coming to it. How's Zoom working for you? How are the virtual meetings working for you? Uh, very similarly to what I hear you two talking. Um, in the beginning, it was a novel idea, and I just thought it was a blast of, wow, look what we can do nowadays. Then it got to be a drag because uh, internet connections wouldn't be real good. And I'm not real adept at computers or so I said. And uh, so I've had to learn to ask for help once again in an area that I don't know about. So I'm oh, being ooh, a new person. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it's humbling. Um, but it was, I was desperate enough that I wanted to stay connected. And that for, I'm so grateful for that gift of, of desperation. So Zoom, uh, and I also missed my home group because they did not go on to Zoom. Um, mm, and I really, uh, in the beginning, thought, and I and I think all of our home group did, because my home group was a meditation meeting. A little hard to do, uh, or we thought it was a little hard to do via Zoom. And I really didn't think it would last. This was going to last very long anyway. No. Uh, so then it just dragged on and on and on. And not having a home group felt... There was a hole in my program. Uh, so when I had um, heard about Shivering Denison's before I found it, and then it was important to me that Shivering Denison was not going to go live because uh, I don't know when I am going to feel comfortable going out among people that I don't really know, but I treasure interacting with people I don't really know. So um, I was really grateful to hear that part. Uh, I have heard about meetings that are are going live, and I found myself saying, hmm, and then I say, mm-mm. So I've, I've made peace with Zoom now. Uh, it's my mode of communication, and it's working. Yeah, there's a, there's a speaker meeting here that last week they were live, and Ooh. they broadcasted it as a Zoom meeting. But for me, that feels like you're missing out. If you're in the Zoom, you're missing out of the real me. It's kind of like you're watching somebody else's meeting. And with the Zoom meeting where everybody's, where it's just on Zoom, if you participate, you, you're you part of the meeting. I mean, you're- No, oh, I get what you're saying. It's, it's more like you're a lurker if, uh, if, uh-huh. if, if it's a hybrid meeting. Right. Whereas, uh, I, yeah. and, you're Zoom, and you're Zooming. I get I that. A yeah. little bit like that. It, actually, in the beginning with Zoom, it felt um, voyeuristic. Uh, and then I thought, mm. well, these are my peeps. That's who I am. Well, you know, I know one secret to helping a, uh, a Zoom meeting not feel voyeuristic, and that is turn your damn camera on, people. Stop oh, lurking in the background behind your initials or whatever. Yeah, I'm going to start doing that because <laughs> yeah. it is, it is. I don't like just seeing names up there. Yeah, no. I, I don't mind when somebody says, I can't turn my camera on today because I really don't blah, blah, blah. If they got a reason. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. They, and they say openly, I have a reason. It's the... Um, who are you? There, there, well, you there needs know, to be some expectations. I mean, we had a guy last week who was sharing as he was walking around. He had the camera off. He's walking around. You could hear him walking all over the place as he was talking. Then he flushed the toilet. Oh, Lord. As he was talking. <laughs> and I'm like, what? what? Have you no respect for yeah. other people? Yeah, well, that, and so that's, that's a big thing. The Zoom etiquette. You know, yeah. this is something that hmm. quite frankly... Um, people are going to have to be sponsored into that now too. You know, yeah, it's, it's that right. same thing of, you know, when, when I came in, I, I looked around the room and I also had people that friended me and a sponsor eventually who kind of like helped me know how to behave in a meeting. That's true. Well, we kind of got the same thing with a whole new level. Now we've got that. Plus this is how you conduct yourself when you're, when you're on zoom. That's a great point, Sam, because there are people who are smoking um, cigarettes and or the other, whatever the thing is called, and eating, um, at at literally eating at the meeting and literally smoking at the meeting. 
I don't, I, I don't like, I don't like people laying in their beds. That really, I don't know why that really irritates me. It just doesn't feel respectful. But then I, where I have gone is now you're just getting to controlling. You want to control things. So <laughs> it isn't, it's etiquette. That's exactly what it is. I've like gone different places with that. Cause I've thought, okay, eating, but okay, then maybe just be slightly discreet about it. You just don't want to see, but and then I've seen people like preparing supper with oh. the camera set up and you're watching them walk around for some, that's, that's not good because it's distracting. I end up looking at that instead mm -hmm. of paying attention yeah. to the person speaking. So I like it for people to be there. I, I've given up on laying down because I've actually had the impulse to do it. Hmm. If you're on a mobile device, if you're on a laptop, you tend to want to sit up and, and I think, I don't know if this is the case, but for me, if I lean into the meeting, mm -hmm. then I become part of the meeting. Mm -hmm. And if I sit back and start watching it, it becomes television. Mm -hmm. And I'm it's, not it's, really. It's front row and back row again. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's Let's just compare it to that physical meeting. It's front row and back row. That's you exactly want to sit at the front or you want to sit at the back? Of yeah, the you're in the loafer room. section or the, yeah. Relapse row. Relapse row. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Liz, when did you get sober? In February of 1979. I was actually had not had a drink prior to that, like since I think New Year's Day of that year, because <laughs> I had to be sober to go to a meeting. I mean, talk about etiquette. <laughs> yeah, it's just bad etiquette. It's bad etiquette. Actually, you don't have to be. No, sober. you don't have to oh, be. Yeah, learned that. <laughs> you have to want to be sober. I have learned that big time. Yeah. Um, but it was that that um, ho Christmas holiday prior to that of '78 that I drank myself silly, and I on New Year's Eve, I think it was, saying, "I can't wait till this holiday's over so I can stop drinking." And that it was it's oh, come wow. back to haunt me to recognize who does that, who has, who has to do that. And the other part of it, I, I came in for a friend. He definitely had a drinking problem. And I came in via what I thought was Al-Anon in where I grew up in the program, which is in the um, suburbs of DC on the Maryland side. Very careful to be sure I'm not in the Virginia side. <laughs> Only locals would get that, I think. I don't get it, <laughs> but go ahead. Is quite a, quite a, an attitude if you were yes. from Maryland side or the Virginia side. Okay. Maryland side was the real side. Um, <laughs> the meetings were called, they weren't called open and closed. Uh, I mean, they had closed meetings, but it was an AA Al-Anon meeting rather than just an open meeting. Ah, okay. So that's what I chose um, was the Al-Anon AA meeting out of my neighborhood. That was the other requirement. Because can't let people see you that mm -mm, know you. Mm -mm, no, indeedy. Uh, had lots of secrets to, to keep. And that first meeting, everybody was talking about me. They weren't talking about my friend. They were talking about me. And I'm saying, holy cow. That's exactly what I said. These people <laughs> are reading my mail. Reading my mail. They were talking and laughing about things that I was so deeply ashamed of. And I was oh, yeah. going to my grave with. And I'm not really sure what held me together to stay in that whole hour of a meeting. But man, I zipped out right away because I was sobbing it by then. And I sobbed all the way home. And it was a cleansing cry. It was one of those first recognitions of a difference of cry. And that was a cleansing, it was a relief. And I started going to meetings every day after that. Now I was still going for somebody else. But I wanted to hear more, hear more. And that's when I came to feel like, well, when are you going to start talking about the family? Because that's really where my issues are. Uh, and they would say, keep coming back. And I say, okay. And I did end <laughs> up in a few uh, straight Al-Anon meetings. And they didn't speak to me quite like the AA meetings did. And my friend who was the, the real alcoholic and I started talking about this drinking instead of drinking together and complaining about the world. He drank like my father. So I, I was real clear that he was alcoholic. I was a binge drinker, 
it's a little bit harder for me to grasp that I was actually alcoholic because I could stop. I could stop for months at a time. I even stopped five years at a time at one time to have to get married and to get to have children because that was one of my cures of my crazy rebellious lifestyle. But they were miserable years other than healthy pregnancies, thank God. Uh, the marriage literally fell apart at that point. And I just figured another child would help that one. And so it wasn't until after my second child was born when I really began to have anxiety issues, which were appropriate because my father had them too and, and was uh, encouraged by the doctor to go on not tranquilizers, but I don't remember what he called them, but they were definitely tranquilizers and I was definitely addicted right away. I find it took me a while to take one, but when I took one, it undid that knot in my stomach. So I took two. Right. And yeah. So it was, um, if one works, five will be better. <laughs> yeah. That's it. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I was right. So what's the, de- what's the definition of an alcoholic? It is, uh, for me, only to decide. Now, I know that the DSM has a, a clear definition, but for me, it's not how much I drank, it's what happened to me when I drank. And I find that what, when I work with sponsees, it's, you know, I don't, I don't care what you drank, where you drank it, that kind of thing. What happened to you? What's happened on the inside? That's my yeah. operational definition of alcohol. Yeah, I like that. I want to roll back around real quick since we're talking about that too. Um, Cause we mentioned open and closed meetings. Mm-hmm. And so an open meeting is a meeting that anyone can attend. Uh, if, even if you're not an alcoholic, if you don't want to stop drinking, you can attend it because you want to go to support someone. You can medical students attend these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there are all kinds of people. Closed meetings are for people who have a desire to stop drinking people who consider themselves alcoholic or who think they might be alcoholic and they, and they, they, they are considering this not drinking thing. Um, that's the difference between an open and closed meeting. Yeah. yeah. Just a desire to stop drinking. You're welcome at a closed meeting. And there's different reasons for that. Like somebody, you know, might be a, a doctor or a teacher and not want to go to a meeting where people who are somebody else in the community will find out that they're going, you know, so it's to protect their anonymity. Yeah. And I remember that being a real big issue for me in the beginning of who am I going to know? Who's going to know me until (laughs) finally somebody said to me, well, they're probably here for the same reason you are. Yeah. And that's shocking. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I was, I remember occurred to me. (laughs) I remember going out of town and looking for a meeting one of the first times and I found out it was at this church and I go to a church and park and I can't tell where to go in. And then I'm going to realize it's this great big building, a big facility. And I've got to ask someone where the AA meeting is. And if I do, then they're going to know I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> and I'm going to one of these meetings. <sighs> and then there's so that, that, that ego side of, Hey, isn't that Sam's car out there and yeah. parked out in front of that place where all those alcoholics? That's true. Oh my, know. he's actually doing something about his drinking problem. Well, yeah. I thought that was interesting. That, so you were a binge drinker and, and then it sounds like that getting the drugs on the drugs and tranquilizers yeah. made things worse. Well, actually it was, it's that, now I understand, I didn't then, it's that old mindset is that initially the pills, which was Cirex, because I was very arrogant. I said, I am not going to be a suburban housewife, housewife taking mother's little helper. And, <laughs> yeah. and the doctor assured me that he was not going to give me Valium. She ran into the shelter of a mother's little helper. Rolling Stones first album. Oh, okay, thank you. <laughs> so it undid those the knot that I talked about, and so that that relaxed me, and so I could be a quote human again. But it created it did kick off the addictive part of the brain. It just woke it right back up, mm-hmm. and I preferred alcohol, and I am so grateful. My body um, preferred alcohol because. Mm-hmm. 
I started getting involved with my children's school and the community and church and got on uh, committees and stuff like that. In the evenings, they served a glass of wine and I could not titrate the, the pills and the alcohol, couldn't trust it. So I said, the heck with these pills, I'm gonna have my glass of sophisticated wine. And man, <laughs> didn't take long after that, that I was the exact same behavior as a teenager, which always mind boggles me of whatever it is I learned or thought I learned in the, what, eight, 10 years that I was had grown up from teenagehood, just went right out the window. Well, the alcohol took over. Yeah, yeah, and that's what because I was I was fourteen when I started drinking. So was, oh, okay. Yeah, pretty young. Yeah, you know, there's a a common uh, uh, statement within the rooms that I, I've certainly heard for years about um, that that age that we started drinking mm -hmm. um, is kind of when we stopped developing. Yes, and I I represent that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that was very much me as well. I mean, my 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 drug use was first. It was easier for me to get pot than it was to get alcohol. And so at uh, 16, 15, 16 years old is when I started smoking pot. Wow. My, uh, you know, I'm an introvert anyway, but man, did my social skills just completely decline or, or just stop. I mean, it just, yeah. you know, it was one of those things of... Um, I can, as a, I can be a salesman. I can be, I can provide you some awesome customer service. I can get on stage in a heartbeat, mm -hmm. but put me into a conversational situation with strangers. Right. Um, particularly if it's, uh, if it's a small group setting or a, or a large group setting, a party. Oh my God, I hate that stuff. Um, I never was good at that. And, and a lot of that is that I did not have to develop mm -hmm. during that time because I had a crutch. Mm-hmm. And yeah. never learn the skills of talking with other people. Yeah. And that's what alcohol gave me, though, the, that ability. Uh, my mouth never stopped once I started <laughs> drinking. Uh, what was shocking for me was to stop drinking and find out how shy I am. I'm not so much well, in yeah. as I am shy. Okay. So we're, we're saying similar because that was my experience was, you know, I, I, was, I was a good partier. Mm -hmm. I was fun to be around. Yes. But when I stopped drinking, I realized I don't do this well. <laughs> <laughs> I still and yet, don't. And the I still exactly. Don't. Yeah. You know, I mean, I will, and especially God, when COVID is over um, and we get to go to physical meetings comfortably again, and I am staying. I mean, it's like the, 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 the meeting after the meeting is going to last at least an hour uh, <laughs> because <laughs> I, um, but, but it really is. I mean, my last physical home group was uh, young people in Greensboro and it took me, uh, it, it was still uncomfortable for me to stay after the meeting mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and be a part of this environment that felt like a party. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. But Absolutely. I'm going to, I'm going to power through that when, when, when we can get back together. Good point. Again. Good point. I wonder if you can identify with this. I went to a party and I'd been sober for a year and a half or so and people were drinking. I did not want to drink and was determined not to drink. So I was at the party and it was uncomfortable talking to people because it was going to be full of just these little chit chat, social things. I went up to a group of two people standing there. It was very uncomfortable. And then we got into a little conversation and I felt great when I was talking at that point. And we were like the three connected. And then at a certain point, you know, the steam just kind of, kind of ran out. Yeah. And one of them goes, I'm going to go get another beer. And he took off. And the other one, and we don't have anything to say. And it kind of broke up. And I'm standing there. All of a sudden, my anxiety level starts rising up. I'm uncomfortable. And I was going, okay, well, this is the moment I'd go like that guy and get another beer. Mm -hmm. but I'm not going to do it. And I just waited with it, sat with it, and went up to another group of people and started talking. We got into a little conversation. The anxiety level went away. We were connected with each other. And then at some point, steam runs out, and one of them goes, and I'm going to get a you know glass of wine, leaves. And the same thing happened again. I realized the alcohol 
really didn't do anything for me except kill time because I can, (laughs) and and kind of like give me a a bridge over that anxious feeling. Mm -hmm. So being able to just sit with the anxious feeling and then wait until I get into another conversation with someone, everything was okay. And I was just as connected and happy talking to the other people as I would have been if I was drunk. And the nice thing was I didn't have to get out of control and make an ass out of myself. I was, you know, I wasn't drinking. So all it was really doing was a little bridge over that anxious feeling in between conversations. Hmm. Do y'all identify with that? Uh, Not completely because what, where my mind went when you said your first party, See, my life fell apart in my first five years of recovery. Um, I was such a good liar and hider of things that um, it just all went to hell in a handbasket. So I was pretty isolated uh, when I first got sober. But what I do remember is going to my first wedding in recovery. It was my sister's wedding. Mm-hmm. And she she married someone who, who drank a lot. And... Um, I was concerned about how I was going to manage that wedding and talked about it in meetings and got great suggestions. And one of them was always have a drink in your hand, your own drink in your own hand. And I prefer non alcoholic. (laughs) (laughs) We both jump in there. A non alcoholic drink. Right. A non alcoholic drink that you know what's in that glass. Oh, yeah. Uh, And so what I ended up enjoying was sidling up to the bar to get more seven up kind of thing that I had the same behaviors I had before sidling up to the bar, but this time it was to have what I wanted in it. Um, That is what that empowered me that I could make it through those kinds of events without alcohol. I don't remember the interactions with any people. (laughs) That wasn't wasn't as important as that I could Mm -hmm. manage something without alcohol. I remember the, uh, at least one of the the very early parties that I went to in in early recovery, my awareness had changed and I was shocked that I saw people that I had never seen before. There were non-drinkers there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It it was nuts. I mean, I, didn't I, I really never paid attention or or couldn't see them or whatever who but knew? but here i am a non-drinker and and there are people there who are not drinking and i also remember being at a, a big drunken guest. party <laughs> oh yeah yeah there were yeah it was fl- and i remember being aghast i was standing outside with uh two or three guys and one of them was drinking uh little airplane bottles of mm-hmm. liquor mm-hmm. He took a swig or two off of one of them. And then he was like, all right, I'm done. And just turned it over and poured the rest out on the ground of an airplane bottle. What? A shot. Um, I just, I, 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 obviously that stuck with me. I mean, that was 17 years ago that, and that was still, uh, I can still see it in my head. Um, but yeah, it, it was crazy to experience people. Uh, who didn't drink or who didn't have a, who didn't drink like I drank, Mm -hmm. who were going to these parties. He was not an alcoholic. By no (laughs) means. He was an alcohol abuser. (laughs) Right. So Liz. That one. (laughs) When, so you came in and you're a periodic drinker and you don't know what alcoholism is. Like, like I didn't, I've like few people do who come in Mm -hmm. really know what it is. And, I heard people who drank much worse than me and they were telling these stories and, and my disease would go, Oh, well, well, I haven't done, done that. You know, I'm, I didn't keep liquor in the trunk of my car. And when it was a hundred degrees, go out and drink hot liquor and, and I have to do it. I mean, goodness gracious. That's, that's not me. So I had to learn to identify myself into the program rather than identify myself out of the program. And it sounds like you had some experience with that. Oh, yes, I did. Um, After the relief of not having to drink, I I heard early on, and I I don't have this specific, but I heard early on, it's not how much you drink, it's what happens when you drink. That 
struck me between the eyes. But what does that mean? I mean, so what are you talking about? What happens when you drink for somebody new? Okay, great. Uh, What happened to me is that that first drink called for the second drink. I I never I also when I realized I never wanted a drink. I wanted Mm -hmm. a drunk. I made sure that I was in a (laughs) hole. I've never heard of that. I love that. (laughs) I want a drunk. (laughs) I want a drunk. And that I knew that was my my treat to myself. Mm -hmm. What it does to me is sets up that obsession that I want another drink and another drink and another drink. And then I just, there is no stopping until I pass out. And there was always a glass of whatever I hadn't finished by my bedside because I just drank till I passed out. Um, Most of the time I made it to my bed, but not always um, before passing out. So that's what I mean when I say uh, it's, it's not what you drink or how much, plus uh, what, what I drank. You know, I would hear, oh, you're a lightweight because you only drank whatever. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, that is such a disservice to people yeah. who are looking to get sober. Yes. Oh, it is. It is. Uh, and I remember also getting on the arrogant bandwagon of saying, well, yes, I did finally acquire a taste for scotch, but I drank scotch so rarely. Um, but it was it's such a need to compete, I guess, uh, to be part of that. Mm. Yes, I did. I drank as hard as you did, or I drank hard liquor too, or something like that. Uh, and, and then when, when the behavior piece, the DUIs, the DWIs, what's the difference? I mean, I'm getting all caught up in that. Some of the real horrific things that happened to people when they were drunk, like killing people from in cars or, mm-hmm. I remember one woman who attempted suicide, put a gun in her mouth and pulled the trigger, didn't kill her, but it disformed her terribly and just being so shocked. And so I hadn't gotten quite understood the as yet's and that, that introduced me to the as yet's. If, if it hadn't happened to me, it hadn't happened to me yet. Yet. And I certainly knew I understood the suicide piece because there plenty of times I wanted to die I wanted, I walked down the middle of the road, taking, uh, walking my dog, hoping, which was a black dog at night, hoping that a car would hit me because I didn't have courage, what I called courage to kill myself. But if I got killed, man, I'd be a martyr and, you know, the victim. And I didn't have that language either. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but then I, the next uh, iteration of that was I loved being in a room with jailbirds and crazy people and you should hear their stories. Um, I mean, because they were real people. They turned out to be real people. And I loved hearing their um, or and watching their process of getting into recovery. And some of them were a heck of a lot farther along in recovery than I was. And it was humbling to take suggestions (laughs) from someone who'd been in jail for heaven's sakes. Right. And it's, it's just, I, and it, and then the last iteration that I've, that I stay with is it all of a sudden dawned on me. I loved being around people who drank. I did not like people who did not drink. I didn't trust them. They weren't interesting, blah, blah, blah. Right. They didn't know how to write. They didn't know how to read, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, they weren't authors. So alcoholics uh, have a certain energy, energy and creativity. Yeah. And wildness. Oh, I love the wildness. That <laughs> was too. that was me. Um, but that it, it occurred to me that everybody in that room was an addict of some kind. No wonder I loved being among them, and yeah. I still love yes. being among yes. them. Yeah, yeah, I yes. love alcoholics. I love yeah. So I love being around alcoholics and addicts. I just want I want to be around the sober ones today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because all of us have that crazy energy that like yeah. uh, even the ones it's who are true. introverts the ones who are extroverts mm-hmm. it's all the same all of us and we really know how to enjoy life yeah yeah <laughs> and when when we stop being self-destructive mm-hmm. and put that energy into really enjoying life and being dedicated to helping other people and you know uh, being of service it's like a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is, but I want to point out something. 
I'm pretty sure you two aren't, but I know for a fact I'm not. I am not a saint. Oh, I am no. not doing this stuff out of pure altruism. I did not get a halo when I started, when I got sober and started doing service in my life. Um, it's a part of who I am and I am still a foul mouthed at times. Uh, and I, I just, I, I'm, I'm me. I still go back to the, the, the Captain Kirk in one of the Star Trek movies where uh, uh, Spock's brother would take away people's pain and he offered to take away Kirk's pain. And Kirk was like, no, I want my pain. I need my pain. It's who I am. And I kind of felt that, that, you know, when I came in and, and I let go of this crap that I was carrying around and, and, you know, it's, it's what happens with these steps, you know, you, you kind of clean up your life and your way of living. Um, but I thought that I would, I might go away. Yeah. Um, I didn't go oh, away. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I feared that too. Yeah. 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 The, the difference yeah. In, that I live by now is that I have a rapacious predator and that's what keeps me solidly in the program and inching forward, whatever What's that the, means. What does that mean? What is the rapacious predator doing? Who's this rapacious predator? I'm going to come over there and kick his ass. <laughs> could it be John Barleycorn? It could be. And I don't want you to come kick his ass because like Star don't Trek. Don't take away my don't pain. Take away, don't take him away from me. I tell you, the first person who comes back from a relapse into an, an AA meeting and say, hey, folks, there's no problem with drinking out there anymore if you're alcoholic. It's just all fun and games. I'm out of the door. I, I just will which is not true, but I <laughs> yeah, yeah, I hear you. Saying, the, yeah, it I does, remember it, it is a rapacious predator. It just, yeah. it just dogs my every step. I heard someone say at a meeting, they were sharing about, you know, it's really hard when you're working with someone else, uh, helping them to get sober as a sponsor or just as a close confident and they get drunk they relapse and go back out and then they disappear. And it's like, what, what do I do? I, I need to do something to help this person. Mm -hmm. And the truth of the matter is we only get sober from our pain mm -hmm. and we, and I yeah. could not surrender and give up until alcohol beat me down to the bottom. And I learned that there's no way I will ever be able to control this in my soul, I knew that I was defeated with alcohol when I came to AA. It's over for me. I'll never be able to control this. So mm -hmm. I learned that by failing at trying to control it. And people did not prevent you from hitting your bottom. People that didn't prevent me. And, so, and this person shared in the meeting, and I thought it was harsh, but I, it's really what, what you're saying here. Please don't take away his pain. He needs to go through it. And to be able to accept that. Now, that doesn't mean not to not have compassion for people who are drinking. But you can't get someone else sober. They have to decide to find that place inside that I've had enough of this shit and I've got to get help. And when that happens, then we're right there ready to help them. But you know, as much as you want to, you really can't save people from drinking. It, this program will not allow us to become saints or martyrs. <laughs> it just, because again, this rapacious predator is stronger than us um, at, at every level. But I have a question now with mm -hmm. you two. When you talk about hitting bottom, how do you know when you've hit bottom? Yeah. You know, um, I, I've heard people talk about, uh, some people share about hitting multiple bottoms uh, and, and I, you know, I think that there are false bottoms, uh, that, uh, that I hit. Um, I remember, you know, my, my first AA meeting, I was 18, 19 years old and I went because I didn't drink right. I hadn't even hit a bottom at that point. There had not been negative consequences to my drinking. I just knew I didn't drink right. I was sitting at, you know, in my bedroom drinking warm vodka shots. Um, that's not normal, but the consequences hadn't hit. Then the consequences started adding up, you know, uh, 10 to 15 years after that. And, and 
it was um, it was this thing of uh, I'm going to lose my job. And I've called in sick too many times and my employer is making me go to the employee assistance program. Mm. Well, that's a bottom. Except it wasn't my bottom. (laughs) Yeah. And then it was. uh, Could have been if you wanted to. Totally could have been, but I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready. And then it was, uh, so I wound up, you know, dabbling in AA for, for, so that was in uh, 2002, September 13, 2002 was going to be my sobriety date. Uh, And it was not. Um, And I picked up several start over chips throughout that, the rest of that year, and then went out for the end of the year holidays and did not come back until May of 2003 with a suicide attempt. Um, and I'm like, is that what did it? I gotta be done now. And I went right to AA the next day. And, and, uh, and it was like 42 days later, I drank yet again. How dark I had not hit my bottom, but it was interesting that my suicide attempt was not my bottom, Mm -hmm. but 42 days later, after having worked out in the yard and the, we had this golden sunset going and, and I was just like, screw it. I want to get drunk. And my partner was like, are you sure? And I'm like, well, yeah, I only think I got to an AA meeting. I'm not, I don't need to go to that. Don't have to. Um, and so I got drunk and I got really drunk. And the thing that I got the next day that made that the bottom for my drinking was wow. I really can't control this. It was simply a moment of clarity. I think that's what our bottom is, Mm -hmm. is that moment of clarity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I would say that and willingness to do something about it, to work. The pain got enough that, because I had the moment of clarity at, at different times earlier, but I wasn't ready to ask somebody else what to do and follow their instructions. So, you know, I've heard it and I like this expression a lot. This helped me when I first came in, particularly since I was a higher bottom than a lot of people, but lower than other people too. So, I mean, I I drank a lot, but what I heard was it's an elevator going down. It's not necessary to ride it all the way to the bottom. Mm -hmm. You can get off on any floor. So if I'm willing to, that's why I said willingness, Sam, if I'm Mm -hmm. willing at a, at a point, when I, it's absolutely clear to me that this is out of control and I can't control it. If I'm willing to seek help then, then that's my bottom. I agree. I agree. You know, one of the things that's come up in, in what you were just saying, Don, and, and what you shared earlier, Liz, was um, comparing, mm-hmm. uh, comparing my pain, comparing my drinking, my drug use, comparing my bottom uh, to other people's. And so Liz, a quick little summation of my, I, uh, my last drink was 2003, but I reset my sobriety date in 2012 because I used poppers and diet pills for a couple of years. And I got a, a moment of clarity and it was like, all right, we need to clean this up and start it over. And that happened because I met a bunch of guys in Crystal Meth Anonymous and they were like, oh my God, these are my people. And I, I just, I had to have integrity with them and, and start over. Um, one, and, and so I became a member of Crystal Meth Anonymous and they, I, having never used meth once in my life, I had never even seen it. Um, and so I had this, this horrible egocentric thing of I'm a goody two shoes. Mm. I never did any of this stuff that y'all are talking about and y'all are such bad boys and, mm. and, and I'm not bad enough mm-hmm. to, to, to be a part of all this. I'm not, I'm not bad enough. You know, and, and I, there are things that I don't do within CMA. I don't tell my story at CMA meetings when I, I've been asked because I don't have crystal meth. It's not by story, but I absolutely have experience with the feelings that they have experienced. I have experience with recovery and CMA is incredibly welcoming of anyone who wants to come in and be a member. But man, that comparison thing of being little goody two shoes, um, that will fuck you up. Yes, it does. Does me. Yeah. It did me because I had that attitude with anybody who used drugs, including marijuana. Was well, at least I didn't do that. I wasn't that kind of person. (laughs) 
it took me a while to get beyond that. Um, that's just because my body preferred alcohol. That had nothing to do with my moral aptitude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you like to drink. Yep, <laughs> I did. Perhaps you liked it too well. Perhaps. <laughs> so Liz, what's something that's happened in recovery? Maybe something recently. Yeah, something recently that's happened to you that where you've worked the steps and you've done something using the tools of recovery and it's really worked for you in a way that you wouldn't have believed before you got to AA. What a pertinent question that one is, Don, because it happened just the other day. I was walking uh, my, um, I love a particular uh, trail at Burmill and the dog can run loose. And so I can just be loose in my head. I have been agonizing Sam over my oldest daughter moving from back from, from North Carolina back to Maryland to be with her grandchildren, which all sounds all just perfect and probably is. Moving but away. In a way. Moving away. <laughs> oh, moving away. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Is what you're saying. Moving away. And this daughter is a chip off her old mother's block, um, undecided, but I can see it. And that she left Maryland to move down to North Carolina to get away from those elements. And here she is going back into those elements. So I've just been going all over the place, uh, drubbing up the old, you never were a good mother anyway. And, uh, mm. and one of the things when I moved down here to be near my children after my husband died, not their dad, but my, my second and, and adoring and adorable husband, I was so glad to uh, be able to, for them, my two daughters, to see me on a daily basis kind of thing as a sober woman, not just over the phone and that kind of stuff, because we, we lived apart. So I have just been in heaven because of that. And uh, D Debbie, this daughter, has made a huge change in her life. She's, she's not the bulldog that she was. She's not drinking and, and carousing and drugging and acting out. She's being an upright citizen and loving it, really does seem to enjoy it. And my fear was that she's going right back into the element because two of the women are still there that she did her deal with that was just heartbreaking crap, especially when she had the three small children, my grandchildren, my first grandchildren. And it was, it's tragic what they lived through. So what I did to get to your question, Don, was I use all 12 steps, and I've done this several times, but this is the most recent time, is that I was powerless over my need to be relevant to my children. And the key that hit me like a ton of bricks was my need to be. Of course, I want to be relevant to my kids. I want to be relevant to my sponsees. I want to be relevant to life. That's what I'm here for. But it's that terrible need that was killing me. That was my obstacle. And my life had become unmanageable. I was irritable. I was just, it was, it was, it was nearly unbearable. It was just like, it was, my whole life was, my whole recovery life was just up in smoke, gone forever. Didn't make a damn to anybody. So uh, fell into self-pity, I think is what that might be called. It was eating uh, you up. It was eating up, eating up. And I could get little pieces of peace in, and from it, uh, share it and get a little piece. Well, anyway, I ran it through the entire 12 steps that I came, I came to, I came to believe, I came to believe that a power greater than myself would restore me to sanity. And bingo, I was insane with this. My, my soundness of mind and soundness of being was just so fragile. Um, and then um, we're entirely ready to have God remove this character defect, this need, this crippling need to have it removed. And again, what um, I don't know that you want to hear the whole 12 steps, but I use the 12 steps. Go I through the 12 steps on it. Oh, okay. Did you, did you actually write it out? No, I was, I was on the trail. So, uh, so you worked, you went, well, you went through the steps in your mind, applying yes. each one to this. Yes. So then when I went to the, got to the fourth step is admit, um, took a fearless and moral inventory of myself. 
it was a recognition that um, that I was fear filled, uh, that that's, you know, fear had risen itself and was driving my bus again. Mm-hmm. And that uh, the moral part was this became selfish that what was going to happen to me when she moved away? What was going to happen to her? And therefore, I wasn't going to have any influence or impact or wasn't there to protect her. <laughs> it was I mean, really all about you. That part was all about, about me. Yeah. Oh, 99.9%. Come on, let me give me a little bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <to> my... <laughs> um, She's a generous then, alcoholic. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> then um, and, I went to admitted to God to ourselves oh, yes. to another human Five. being. Uh-huh. And what I what that has been continued to be so powerful that I learned early on in, in uh, four step work is that me admitting to God was so is so important because I know God knows everything. But I need to say, God, I know you know what I'm thinking and this is what I'm thinking and I cannot shake it on my own. Please help me. And that will give me the um impetus to go to entirely ready to have God remove this defective character. This one that is blocking, that is being my obstacle, keeping it very specific to this need that is crippling me. Mm-hmm. And then humbly ask God of, it's a, a similar to the fifth step in this instance for me was, I can't do it. I've tried, I've used every tool that I know, but I'm missing it somehow. I'm not make, hitting the mark because, because I'm, my life is, is so miserable, unmanageable. Mm-hmm. Then made a list of all persons I had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all was certainly myself. I've been harming myself. I just couldn't seem to break that pattern. But the harming others was that everyone else that I've been in contact with has had this background of irritability and um, less than and victim and self-pity all of that is just that constant nagging thread of that stuff and then made direct amends to them except when to do so would injure them or others I sure as heck didn't know be calling up my daughter like I used to in the early recovery saying this is what I've been doing and I'm so sorry because she was saying what and you know there you go again mother I needed to make amends to myself of saying here it is again. That's all this is. I haven't totally forgiven myself. This is one more little area that needs, uh, not little area, I don't need to diminish it. Uh, one area that this excessive need, I need to forgive myself for it. Just be gentle with that need saying, oh, there you are again. You are powerful. And then 10th step is continue to um, take inventory and when wrong, promptly admit it, is catching myself when I'm doing it of, oh, there you are again. It's an obstacle. You've worked hard. You've, you've identified all this. It's, you've given it up. Now you got to act like it. And then sought through prayer and meditation to improve my conscious contact with God as I understand God, praying only for the knowledge of God's will for me and the power to carry that out that by doing the walking meditation, that's pretty much what my walking is, is about, is the meditation clears my head, that clarity had come to me. It was a gift from the prayer and meditation and that asking God, guide me on this one. I'm out of, I'm out of my element here. I want my daughter to succeed. I want her to be her own person, which I have superficially told her, but then when she acts out, I'll say, oh, not like that. Um, but to really let go of that kind of stuff. Uh, and I definitely need God's power to carry that out. Then having had a spiritual awakening, dear God, my spirit wakes up and saying, oh, you know, it's really just the need. All of a sudden the need doesn't have the power that it had as it did in step one. And that's That's all I'm talking about here is having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, try to carry the message in this instance, also to my daughter by just not having that undertone or my other people that I interact with not have that undertone uh, and to practice these principles in all my affairs. That's, that's a tall order. (laughs) And one that, that keeps me, keeps me minding my own business. (laughs) That's that is great, Liz. That, I mean, that's how it works. 
That's how it works. That's how it works. That's a graphic example of mm -hmm. how we stay sober, not drinking. We're awake of ourselves and what our behavior is. And we run through those steps. I've mm -hmm. done that on, on a problem. And you, mm -hmm. that's a beautiful picture of how to do that. Thanks so much. Oh, Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. But right now you might want to cover your head. Uh-oh. <laughs> It's time for our old timers question. Who you calling an old timer? You? That's what happens if you don't drink and you don't die. <laughs> well, no matter how long you've been sober, Sam, it's still one day at the time. I kind of feel like that might have been like a Willy Wonka moment struggling <laughs> out. I think that old, that old timer's gone. We're going to have to turn it to Liz. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll take it first. Then we'll go. No All right. Well, we time. do. Oh, actually, I've got more that I'm supposed to say here. You distracted me with that dying old timer. <laughs> so sorry. Not sorry. <laughs> you can post a question at boiledowlaa.org. And we have a question from Racy Ronda in North Dakota. <laughs> Uh, why do you keep coming to meetings? Ooh. Ooh. I mean, you, you've got, what, 24 years now? You ought to be sober by now, Don. <laughs> why do it's, you keep coming to meetings? I keep coming to meetings because that's what, that is the way I keep staying sober. What it does, I mean, I don't have a desire to drink anymore. So I'm not going to meetings to keep from drinking Though, if I were to quit, mm -hmm. then I would want to drink over these things that I deal with. Just like Liz was sharing, if I'm not awake and staying on top of my behavior and the way I operate in the world, then I will want to drink again because that's the, all the stuff that built up. That's what I drank at. So... Alcohol is not the problem. It's a symptom of the problem. And what the problem is, is me and the way that I think and operate in the world. And it's by working the steps and all that, that I, that I deal with that. And I react differently to the world. And I can really tell a difference if I don't go to meetings, how my reaction to the world changes. So the way I always describe it is my mind is like a two-year-old. And when my when my son was two years old, he would run towards traffic. Mm -hmm. Well, he was really easy to just pick up and point him in another direction. And he was perfectly happy to run in that direction. And he, he, you know, I'd point him away from trouble. <laughs> and that's what meetings do for me. They pick me up and point me in the right direction, you know, in a safe direction, <laughs> instead of <laughs> going headlong into as much trouble as I can possibly get into. <laughs> so it takes the pressure off going to meetings. It redirects me to remember to do the things that keep me sober and, you know, to remember to turn it over. Remember that I'm not in control of the world and all the people in it. And remember that they're not expected to behave according to my standards. I mean, that's the hardest thing. But it works if I go to meetings, it redirects me. What about you, Liz? Ditto on what you said. In addition to that, it's my one hour a day of hoof. And that reminds me, as you were sharing, reminded me of early recovery. Of That was the only hour of a day that I had any hoof. <laughs> mm. Just living today in this COVID and this whatever else you want to add to it is stressful and I don't, I'm not stressed because we don't do outside issues in meetings. So it's a real, uh, it's plugging into our, our souls, our spirits, our essence, uh, that, and I love being with my peeps. <laughs> There's a lot of uh, relief with that. Just being with other, those energetic alcoholics <laughs> with crazy energy. Mm -hmm. 
truly that, you know, it, it, when I said earlier about uh, meeting those guys in CMA and it's like, Ooh, this is my tribe. These are my people. Um, that's, that's true for alcoholics too. I mean, that's where I first experienced that. And, um, you know, that is where I am most likely going to experience a lot of, of interaction with people in my tribe is by going to a meeting. Uh, in addition to the things that y'all have covered so perfectly, the other part about why do I still go to meetings? Because that's where the newcomers find us. You know, that's we right. got to have meetings so that the people who are looking for help on how can they do this? They've got a place to go and they can meet us and, and ask us, how did you do this? And we can sit down and we can talk. I, I love the, uh, the idea uh, that my, my service sponsor uh, told me a, a while ago that was, you know, the difference between general service and direct service. Direct service is one alcoholic working with another. General service is all the stuff that makes direct service possible. Mm -hmm. Wow. And by that definition, a meeting is general service. Yeah. Actually holding a meeting makes it so that a newcomer and someone who's got experience with this program can sit down. They can meet and then sit down and have a conversation about how to do this. Right. All true. All indeed. Liz, this has been great. Thank you. It has for me too. What a delight. I have thoroughly enjoyed this. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank Pleasure you, Sam. Know, yeah. Watch out. Here comes that pesky owl again. <laughs> He's getting worked up. <laughs> you can't see the visuals, but <laughs> flapping some arms. No. Wings. Wings. The wings of an owl. <laughs> Certainly ain't no wings of an angel. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. The Boiled Owl podcast is posted on the 1st and 15th of every month. Visit us at boiledowlaa.org or email giveahoot at boiledowlaa.org. If you want to know more about AA, Google Alcoholics Anonymous in your city or visit aa.org. Please note, Boiled Owl AA is produced by members of Alcoholics Anonymous and only expresses our experience and opinions. It is not endorsed by AA World Services.